It's time to discover your spiritual identity with your host, Mike Shree. There are hundreds of names and titles given to God's people that powerfully reveal who you are, why you exist, and what your purpose is in this world. Each one pulls back the veil of a different aspect of who you are in Christ. Once you learn these names and titles and apply them to your life, you will rise up boldly to be all that God has called you to be. Are you ready? Here's Mike Shree. Listen to the cry of God's heart in Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord God, in Hebrew, Yahweh Elohim, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me, and where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand is made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. This is a very powerful prophetic forecast of what was going to shift dramatically in the new covenant. God was going to change the whole order from an old covenant temple to a new covenant temple. The old covenant temple made of stone and metal and precious stones. The new covenant temple made of the born-again, blood-washed, spirit-filled children of the Most High God. And God, in this pivotal statement, is shifting from his old, ancient way of doing things to the revelation of what was yet to come that was fulfilled with the coming of the new covenant. So this is a powerful prophecy about the temple of God in this era. God said, for all those things my hand has made, what was he talking about? The materials that were used for the construction of the temple, the stonework that was done, the gold that overlaid it, the precious stones that were scattered on the walls. God made all of those things. But the New Testament temple is primarily signified by the fact that we bring forth something creative on our part that is not a pre-made substance. Our love, our response of joyous praise and worship, adoration, commitment to his will, all these things are things we create out of the wellspring of our own heart. And God, in essence, is saying, I'm much more satisfied with that. I'm much more appreciative of that. Seven reasons why God was not satisfied with the Old Testament temple. Even though the Queen of Sheba said the half has not been told, people were stunned with what a beautiful building it was, amazed and awed by that architectural wonder. But still, God was not satisfied for seven main reasons. Number one, an inanimate building cannot commune with God. To receive revelation from God, and to receive prophetic insights into the future, to receive his word. A building can't do that. Number two, a structure made of stone cannot respond to him in love. And number three, a building like that cannot worship him, praise him, utter words of thanksgiving and gratitude. Number four, an inanimate building cannot hear his voice and follow those directions. Number five, A building cannot follow his will and submit to his purpose. Number six, a building cannot do his work. And most importantly, number seven, 
a building cannot live in his presence forever, for eternity. So for all of those reasons, he forsook it. In fact, God forsook every dwelling place he had in the Old Testament. He moved in the burning bush and forsook it. He moved in Mount Sinai. He enveloped it in fire, and the glory cloud rested upon it, but eventually he forsook Mount Sinai. He moved into the tabernacle of Moses with the glory cloud resting upon that tent-like structure, but eventually he forsook that. He moved into the temple of Solomon. We're going to bring forth the wonderful, amazing way he did that, but eventually he forsook that temple. But when he dwelt in our hearts, when he came to reside within us, he said, I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. Because see, God is finally satisfied with those who can respond to him, who can love him, who can follow his will, who can reflect his image. But let's go even deeper into the evolution of this calling. In the Old Testament saga of the journey of the children of Israel, they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness of sin. And of course, as they changed locations, the tent-like structure, the tabernacle of Moses containing the ark, had to move locations as well. And so God was constantly on the move. He did not have a quote-unquote resting place. Neither did the children of Israel. And as they went into the land of promise, they had to conquer one tribe after the, the next until they finally secured the landmass that God had given them. And so it was a journey. There was uh, no final resting place for God for many years. And then the Temple of Solomon was built, this glorious edifice. And Solomon dedicated that temple, and you should read Second Chronicles chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's absolutely amazing. It's stunning to see how God responded to the longest recorded prayer in the Bible, which was the dedication prayer of the temple. And it ended with this statement. Listen, Solomon said, Now therefore, arise, O Lord God, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. And when that prayer was finished, the fire of God, you can read about it in Second Chronicles chapter 7, fell from heaven and consumed thousands of animals that were there as a burnt offering sacrifice to God. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple to such degree of intensity that the priests could not even enter the temple. Prior to that, the glory had been so strong that they collapsed under the presence of God's glory and could not even stand up in the temple. Think of that. Because they gave God a resting place, but it was only a temporary resting place, one that God was not satisfied with. But I think it's significant to see that when God found his permanent resting place, that the fire of God fell again in the upper room on the disciples. Cloven tongues of fire appeared over each of them, and the glory of God rushed in like a rushing mighty wind and filled all the house where they were sitting. And this time, God was satisfied. In the original Ark of the Covenant, 
in the Holy of Holies, you found three articles. There were the tablets of stone written with the handwriting of God, the Ten Commandments, the golden bowl full of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded. And each one of those had an earthly element and a heavenly element to it. The stone came from earth. The handwriting came from heaven. The golden bowl came from earth. The manna that was in it came from heaven. Aaron's rod that budded came from earth. It was probably the rod of an almond tree. But the resurrection life that brought it back into a state of life where it brought forth buds and almonds uh, came from heaven. And so there was a physical, material element married to a supernatural, spiritual element. And so that ark was, in a sense, the connecting point between eternity and time, between heaven and earth, between a transcendent God and lowly people who cast their eyes, hearts, and worship his direction. Now, the ark was in a literal physical temple. It was a literal physical box overlaid with gold. But I believe it represented something that was yet to come in the new covenant because you and I, if we're born again, if we're saved children of God, we are the temple of God. And so in a spiritual sense, the ark is within us. And all of those items that were in the ark were representative, symbolic, and prophetic of things that are in our hearts. The handwriting of God. He said, I will write my law upon their hearts. The golden bowl full of manna. Well, that's bread from heaven, the revelation of the word of God that is within our hearts. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Aaron's rod that budded, that's resurrection life. All of us were dead in trespasses and sins, That resurrection life came into us and quickened us back to the status of being sons and daughters of God. Yes, we are God's new temple in which resides his spiritual ark of the covenant, because we have a covenant with God, a binding agreement between the creator and those who respond to him in submission. There is no safer place to be than in a covenant relationship with God. Now, remember, the ark in the Old Testament was in the most sacred space in the entire world, the holy of holies. The holiest place in the world was the temple. The holiest person in the world, in a sense, was the high priest. The holiest time was the day of atonement, and that was when the high priest went into the holy of holies and sprinkled blood on the Ark of the Covenant. And so, of the entire world, that was the most sacred space. But it was prophetic of something far more sacred in the new covenant to come, because the blood of a goat hasn't been sprinkled on you. The blood of the Son of God has washed you clean from your sins, that you might become, as God indicated in Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, the place of his rest. Why does God term it that way? Because human beings tend to strive with God. Remember in the days of Noah, when the flood came, God said, my spirit will not always strive with man. Because human beings tend to be antagonistic toward God, rebellious against his commandments, ignoring his sovereignty and his lordship in their lives. And so there's a tension there. There's stress in this 
relationship that should be loving and peaceful and responsive and a holy union. Instead, it's been fractured by sin and by a satanic invasion into this world. But see, God said, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? Where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one, I will look. In other words, God says, I'm going to search the world over for an individual that can fulfill this calling, for many individuals who can fulfill this calling. And number one on the list is, I will look on him who is poor. That's not a reference to being poverty-stricken in a material sense, although people who are poor naturally tend to have spiritual poverty of spirit as well because they're not caught up in material things and the pride that often goes along with it. But God said, I will look on him who is poor. That's the Hebrew word ani, A-N-I-Y. It's also translated humble and lowly. The first thing on the list of seven things God hates is a proud look. The first thing on the list of what attracts God to a person to make that person his indwelling, his temple, his habitation, is humility, poverty of spirit. No wonder Jesus placed it first on his list of eight Beatitudes in the beginning of his ministry. He launched his word revelation with these eight blessed statements, beginning with the one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, heaven is going to manifest in an earthly place when the conduit through which it can flow is someone of a poor spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, those who have a poverty in spirit mentality. What does that mean, to be poor in spirit? It means to recognize that you are bankrupt in Adam. Mentally, you're bankrupt. Emotionally, you're bankrupt. Spiritually, you have nothing that you can offer God within your own goodness or righteousness that would justify a request that he dwell in you. You've got to recognize your worthlessness and emptiness without him. Without him, I can do nothing, Jesus said in John chapter 15. Two other translations of that same passage help understand what Jesus was really trying to communicate. One version says, how blessed are those who know their need of God. Another translation says, happy are those who are spiritually poor. See, the person who is spiritually poor, the person who recognizes his need for God realizes I am nothing without him. Without him, I can do nothing. Without him, I can be nothing. That's a bad place to be if you stay there. That's a wonderful place to be if you offer that attitude of heart to God and it launches you into a relationship with God. Otherwise, you just wallow in grief the rest of your life. See, you reach that lowest point to get to the highest point. There's other scriptures that talk about poverty of spirit that are really interesting. For instance, in Psalm 40, verses 16 and 17, David said this, and incidentally, David, in his day, was most likely one of the richest men in the world. He gave a huge sum out of his own personal treasury to build the temple. Uh, 
to lay up the material so that his son Solomon could build it later on. And so he was extremely wealthy, yet he said this in Psalm 40, verses 16 and 17, let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. Listen now. Then David said, but I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. So here, probably the wealthiest man in all the world says, I'm so poor and I'm so needy. That's not a negative mindset. That's not a negative self-image. That is an honest recognition of how desperately you need God. He said, I am poor and needy, and then expresses awe, yet the Lord thinks upon me. What a beautiful statement that is. God said, I'll look to that person. And of course, in David's day, it wasn't time for human beings to become God's temple. Psalm 109 verse 22 also, I believe that was written by David, and he said, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. People who have been very wounded by life tend to be poor and needy. And that's both bad and good. It's bad that you were wounded. It's good that it whittled down the human arrogance and pride and self-sufficiency until you were so poor in spirit, you were ready to receive God. And then Isaiah 41, 17 and 18 says, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue fails for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. In other words, God was saying, when you reach the point in your life where you're so thirsty, you feel like you're about to die from it. You're in an arid wilderness spiritually, but you have a poor and needy attitude when the poor and needy seek water, not proud, self-confident and self-sufficient, but the poor and needy. Then God said, I won't just meet your need. I won't give you a bucket of water. I'll give you lakes and ponds and rivers and springs. I'll give you so much water. There'll be far more than you need for the rest of your life and on into eternity. Abundance. Thank God for that. So no wonder it's a good thing to develop a poor and needy attitude of heart. Second on the list was contrite. God said, On this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit. What is it to have contrition or to have a contrite heart? The word contrition, which is drawn from the word contrite, means godly sorrow. There's two kinds of sorrow. The sorrow of the world, and that will drive you to suicide or drive you to deep depression. The sorrow of the world is overwhelming. Or godly sorrow that works repentance, the Bible said, not to be repented of. The sorrow of the world brings you to a place of guiltiness and self-condemnation. The sorrow that is godly brings you to a place of conviction and deliverance. And so it's much different. And Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. And then David, after his backsliding into sin, 
adultery and murder. How horrendous, how unthinkable that a prophet could descend into that abyss of sin. But he wrote Psalm 51 as a psalm of repentance, which was sung publicly in all the gathering places throughout Israel. What an act of humility on his part, because they knew it was the king's admission of his own sin, repentance, failure, and restoration. And he said in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, these you will not despise. See, contrition is a good thing. Having a heart that is cold and callous and you don't care if you sin or not, and you dare to say, well, I haven't repented for months. Uh, That kind of heart doesn't attract God. That repels God. But a broken and a contrite spirit, he will not despise. And finally, my favorite scripture expressing this idea of contrition is Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. To revive means to resurrect back to life. So God says, if you show me a contrite spirit, a humble spirit, I will come all the way down to this low place you're at in life, and I will lift you to the high and the holy place. That's talking about being lifted to a spiritual place, inhabiting a place of communion with God where God dwells in you and you dwell in God and he revives you. He brings you back to life and fills you with joy and peace and victory and power where you were just a broken person before. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Lastly, number three, the third thing on God's list of what's required if he's going to make someone the place of his rest was a heart that trembled at his word. Remember, he said, on this one will I look, on him who is poor, on him who has a contrite heart, and on him who trembles at my word. Does that mean trembling with terror? No. I believe it means trembling with awestruck wonder that you actually know the words of the living God. You can read 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. Don't neglect that. Read it every day because those are divine communications into your life. And if you tremble as you read the word, it's the Bible's way of saying you're so submitted to it. You want to assimilate it into your life. You want to conform to its standards. You tremble with worshipful awe that you know the word of God. No wonder Psalm 2 verse 11 says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. In other words, don't ever take God for granted. Even when you're shouting and rejoicing and lifting your hands in your heart of hearts, be trembling in the recognition that you are so blessed to be chosen as one of his own offspring. What an awesome thing never to be taken lightly never to be taken lightly. In James 2.19, it says, you believe that there is one God? You do well. The devils or the demons also believe and they tremble. And last night, a dear friend of mine, Mitch Cochran, and I were talking about this revelation. 
And Mitch brought up this scripture to me. I thought, oh, how powerful that is. I said, I'm going to use it, but I'm going to give you credit, Mitch. Because he said, if the devils tremble at the recognition of who God is, how much more should human beings not take religion lightly and not take their relationship with God lightly and not be shallow in their commitment to him? But how much more should we tremble with awe that we know the true and the living God and we are going to dwell with him eternally and we are going to be the habitation of his glory forever and forever. If devils can tremble, you better believe the sons and daughters of God should tremble with worshipful awe toward the one who made all of this happen. Amen to that. Thank you for listening to Discover Your Spiritual Identity with Mike Shree, a podcast designed to cause a spiritual awakening in your life. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can go deeper into this amazing revelation of the names God has given his people by getting your copy of Mike Shreve's book titled, Who Am I? Dynamic Declarations of Who You Are in Christ. We also invite you to visit our website, shreveministries.org, and sign up to be part of our global internet family, a group of on-fire believers who are bold to proclaim, I am who God says I am, I have what God says I have, and I will be what God says I will be.